Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Cleveland is the American model who, with her joyful catwalk sachet and groundbreaking looks, became a key figure on the 1970s fashion scene. A bohemian upbringing in Harlem led to being discovered by Vogue and hanging out with Muhammad Ali, partying with Andy Warhol and Karl Lagerfeld in Paris, being a Halston muse in New York and starring in the Battle of Versailles, a legendary event in fashion history credited with putting American fashion on the map for the very first time. Over the years, she has married and had a family, written books and run a modelling agency, and continues to give valuable support to models and designers. She spoke to me from her home in New Jersey, where she works as an artist, to share some memories from her extraordinary life. Yeah, I'm in my studio at home. You see, I paint in here. This is called a creative mess. Oh, look, it's Halloween. I dressed the skeleton. <laughs> is, that a so real, is that a real skeleton? No, that's one of those Halloweens. You know, the problem is like you like anatomy when you're painting, but this one's all twisted. His hands are on backwards. You know, it's kind of how you feel sometimes. So, <laughs> so oh, how's, the art, how's the artwork going? Oh, I just finished another painting, but I put it up in the living room. I hope it doesn't scare anybody because I'm doing these portraits of myself healing. And it's like all the environments I've been in before March and this summer, I got to sit in the garden and feed the peacocks and the chipmunks and all. Art is sort of in your blood, isn't it? Your mom um, was an artist. Yeah, my mom was an artist. My mother did oils, but I do acrylics. You know, times are different now. I mean, you can use acrylics and get the same effect as an oil, you know, without the poison aspect. <laughs> so you grew up in, in, in Harlem in, in the 50s and 60s, and you must have had all this art, amazing artwork all around you. Do you think that really contributed towards you becoming an artist or influenced you? Well, I think, you know, if you're a seed and you land in a petunia patch, you're going to grow up even if you're an onion. You know, I think I landed <laughs> in the, a nice flower patch and I ended up being the onion that had to get all those layers off to figure out. You know, onion flowers are very beautiful. So, Pat, tell me where this joie de vivre that you're so famous for and that you're displaying right now as well, where does that come from? I think, you know, like if you look at nature and stuff and you just watch it all blooming out and you keep that feeling in you, you just feel like you're blooming all the time no matter where you go. It's like, you know, the people around you help you to stay happy and joyful. And if you just put in your head somebody you love or something that you did that makes you happy, that's the joy de vivre, like a feeling that you get that never leaves you you know if you're lucky and as a kid were you like that as well yeah I think you know my mom had a difficult situation she was a single mom you know I didn't have the dad and she didn't have like a lot of money but she had a lot of talent like as far as she can whistle like a bird you know (laughs) she can whistle is that why they is that why (laughs) she was called Lady Bird Cleveland 
Well, she was called Ladybird because down in Georgia, you know, she's part Cherokee, half Cherokee Indian and half African American. And so, you know, everybody gave their kids names like a Buffalo Eye or a Big Eye or a Little Eye or something, long hair. And she just happened to be a Ladybird, you know, like a bird that flies, not like the ones in England that are little, tiny with the dots <laughs> on them, which I found yeah. out later. So everywhere I went, I could see her like a little bug. But, um, you know, growing up in the South and everything, being, um, you know, uh, mixed like that, and there were not so many opportunities. And she used to learn to draw, like, with her mom. Her mom was really talented and used to make the first Nike shoe. Like, you know, they didn't have shoes, so they made shoes out of rubber tires. (laughs) So they sewed up these shoes with these rubber soles, you know, like in the 30s and the 20s. Because everybody was... Like after that, they had that uh, Great Depression, you know, so they didn't have anything except their own, what they could do and make, you know. So she grew up making things like good food and learning to draw off this one catalog that used to come in with all these dresses that you could buy, like for 25 cents and $5 for a pair of shoes in the 30s. That was a lot of money. And you were designing (laughs) clothes as well, right? Oh, yeah, I made this. (laughs) I made this outfit it's all colorful because it looks like an abstract painting I love colors because I think if you're happy and you're you are not blind you know if you're blind you're more about vibrations because I lost my eyesight once and I know what it's like to be blind but now that I have my eyesight I like colors because it just makes me happy and it makes me how did you lose your eyesight oh I was in a shooting I did a whole bunch of work in the um, in the early 70s with photographers who used ring lighting, the kind you use when you do operations. And the whole effect was you would get like red eye. It would look like you had these red eyes. And so I, I worked so much with different photographers. I don't want to say the names. They're very famous. But it blinded me, burnt out my retinas and everything. So I was blind for like months and months and months. And I was so tremendously... Um, strange because I didn't know if I was going to get my eyesight back was this something how old were you when this happened um I was like 26 or something like that so you'd already been modeling for quite a while yeah huh. this is why I didn't go to Hollywood and do acting because I didn't want those lights in my eyes shall we talk about the, the magical cabinet tell me uh, something you put in there well, it's got to be so super huge big and don't laugh because I want to put my whole house in there because then that way I can get be comfortable. My bed is there, my studio. I can go paint. You know, my husband's in there. We can have a nice tussle together. Everybody, my family comes over, visits. We can all play in the floor. You know, stuff like I would put my whole house in there. But if you want to get, like, picky about stuff and say, okay, now what's in that house? Then I would put my wedding pictures in the album and all my career photo albums in there so I can have a memory of where the good times were. I would do that as one thing, you know. So can we just go back a little bit um, to when you first began modeling um, as a teenager on the subway? Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, when you're a teenager, you know, you're just out there being blissful and stuff. And then my whole thing was like, I love at home, we used to sew a lot. But anyway, I used to make clothes every night because I 
couldn't find anything that fit me in the stores and everything was so expensive that I wanted. And back in those days, you know, like 40s and 50s, people used to make their clothes. Women used to make their clothes. So I learned how to make clothes. So before, I just wanted to look new every day, you know, wake up and feel fabulous. And so I would make like little mini skirts before they even came out, pre-twiggy, mind you. And I'd make that little mini skirt and go to school and they'd send me home. What are you wearing? Go home and change. That skirt is too short. (laughs) So one day I had one of those skirts and I made these leotards to go under them. Now at the time, people were wearing like heavy undergarments and stuff like that. But I made myself a pair of tights and matching fabric to go with my skirt, which people weren't wearing that at the time. Only dancers had tights. And I was a dancer for a while, so I put my tights on under my mini skirt, and boom, shakalaka, boom, I went with my girlfriend in the subway because the bus was on strike that day, so we had to take the subway. What a fluke, I'm telling you. Walking across on 42nd Street, nobody went to 42nd Street, but the Gray Bar building was on top of the Grand Central Station at the time, which is where Vogue was located. Well, anyway, I was walking through the tunnel there with those hundreds of people shuffling along like uh, dominoes. And this lady was following me and she had this, she looked really, really cute. She was dressed all fashiony and everything. I thought, oh, that's nice. And my girlfriend, Frances, said, no, don't stop. She's chasing you. She might kill you. I said, how is she going to kill me? Look how she's dressed. She's gorgeous. <laughs> I stopped, and everybody who was walking behind me stopped like dominoes falling backwards. And I stopped in the middle of the crowd. And in New York, you just don't stop in the middle of the crowd because it's like a herd of people walking through. Anyway, so she caught up with me, this girl. And her name was Amanda, and she was the assistant of Carrie Donovan. And she was English. She was English by the way. So she must have thought, oh, this girl is nice, you know, like being so odd in English and in America, you know, being able to spot things, you know. And um, so there she was and she said, oh, this is my card. I'm from Vogue and I would like to do some kind of article about you. And my girlfriend, Frances, was so upset because we missed the train and our books were heavy. You know, you used to carry your books in your arms in those days. And she was trying to rush me, but everything stood still when that Amanda handed me that card that said Vogue. It was like that golden ticket and everything disappeared. My mind went boom. I was in outer space. I thought, oh, my God, I got the Vogue card. Because, you know, you grow up grow as a little girl reading Vogue or Ebony, all those magazines they have in America. And I had that card, and I knew she was going to call me. And she did. And she invited me up to meet Carrie Donovan. And this is how I started to get into um, fashion. What was your first shoot with, with Vogue? Who was the photographer? Because the models then, who was it? Like like Lauren Hutton? And was that the kind of moment, Marisa Berenson? Um, no, Marisa Berenson, yeah. She was the one I liked the most. And Daniel Luna and Marisa Berenson. And... You, did you work with Varushka? Did you meet Oh, my her? God, I lived with Varushka for a while. Oh, my God, she, we became fast friends. You know, in this model world, the people you love show up. You know, somehow, you know, like, oh, my God, you get to finally meet somebody you really, really love and appreciate from a distance. And then you find out you have so much in common. 
And Varushka used to love to draw, and I drew, and we used to draw on things together, like little pussy cats and little cartoons and stuff, because we lived together at my agent's house, Zoli, on 62nd and Park Avenue. And he had this townhouse, so we both had a room in there, and so we would giggle and eat and drink cocoa and draw cats and be <laughs> friends. <laughs> and even also Marisa Berenson, wow, what a beauty. So naturally young and pretty and big sparkly hazel eyes and curly hair and just a lovely person. And we became friends too, she and her sister. Her sister, uh, Barry Berenson, was a photographer and we were teenagers together. And she took my first pictures for Vogue one day. Um, um, I was up at Vogue and uh, this um, Menning Obergon, he was the illustrator of Diana Vreeland. And Diana Vreeland used to take uh, Menning Obergon over to the collections in Paris because they didn't have cameras taking pictures of all the clothes. They only could have an illustrator in there because people were so afraid they'd steal the designs and stuff. Not like today, everything's out in the open <laughs> before they even finish. But at that time, it was all a big secret because women did not want to be copied. Everyone was so individual. So Menning Obergon and Joel Schumacher, who later became a film director, were up at Vogue. And one day they saw me. They were peeking through the door, looking at me behind the door in Carrie Donovan's office. And I thought, who's that looking at me through that door? And every time I turned around, the door would close and I would hear them laughing on the other side, planning something. And so as soon as Carrie left the office, they came into the room and they said, we need you, we need you, we need you to model for us. So Barry Berenson, Marisa Barron's sister, Joel Schumacher and Manning Obergon, the illustrator, we all jumped in a limo with balloons and kites and all kinds of fantasy things. And we went out to Central Park and the wind was blowing and it was my first picture in Vogue. And then they asked me back again with my collection. And then um, Carrie Donovan introduced me to Henry Bendels, and bam, before you knew it, I was making my first little collection at 17 years old. And before you knew it, my mom said, you know what, you can be a model. Look at all these girls on the covers. And I thought, are you crazy? No, this is not gonna happen, look at me. And my mom said to me, oh, if you don't wear makeup, you're gonna be an old maid. I said, what? That was the scariest thing back in those days. You're going to grow old and never be loved. So I put some mascara on like eyeliner and bam, that's when everything started happening. That eyeliner took me right out of Miss uh, Plainness. So you became a successful model and then in the early 70s you moved to Paris um, and you said you wouldn't come back to um, America until they put a black model on the cover of Vogue. Um, why would did what were you experiencing in the shoots in America before then, and why were you not put on the cover? And what was the, what was the kind of prejudice that you were experiencing? Well, it was all political in those days. You know, there wasn't a market for black successful people because they thought black people were just slaves and and people or poor people. But there were such you know a society of ladies who are of color. Uh, the Ebony magazine was always the Bible of America for black society ladies. And there were judges and doctors and educators and scientists and everything in the black community. You did a whole tour, a, a kind of modeling tour with them. Yes, I went on the Ebony fashion fair in a bus. I lived in a Greyhound bus for three months and the belly of the bus was full of the most expensive clothes that you could ever get from all the couture designers in France because Mrs. Johnson was a wealthy woman who went to France and bought up all the collections. God, she almost put Halston and Yves Saint Laurent on the map and Valentino 
Yeah, she's the owner of the Ebony magazine, and she was a very, um, very wise woman because she would put on these shows to raise money for college funds for young black people and the colleges. So all the money that she invested in those clothes would go into an auction, and then the auction would raise money to send young people to college. So everything was not for naught. You know, it wasn't about vanity. It was about education and letting people see beautiful clothes. And these clothes were extremely beautiful. You know, like they always say, oh, Paris, all the clothes from Paris, which turned around another way in another time. But for that moment, you know, that was about it. You know, if you had something from there, from the couturiers in Paris, like Madame Grey and, you know, Cardin and everybody, you had something going. So those ladies in society wanted those clothes, and those clothes paid for college educations. And so I got into that bus, and I went there with my mom, and we toured America. And then I had some interesting interludes. Was this in the 60s now? Yeah, 1965, yeah. 66. Yeah. And so, so then I... People were falling I, in love with you. Yeah. Yes, like Muhammad Ali asked me to marry him. Can you imagine? I was 16 years old. And my mother was really into it. And I thought, I'm too young. And the reason <laughs> I didn't go for it is because I'm not that kind of girl who just... I love my clothes. And when he said to me, you cannot wear a miniskirt. You cannot run around and dress like that because he was just becoming a Muslim. I thought, mm -mm, no, this is not for me. <laughs> now, that's something. I love my clothes. <laughs> all the girls were like, oh, my God, he's here for me. And they all jumped him. And he said, wait, get back. I'm here for her. And he tried to take me off the bus. He said, Ma, you have to let her stay here with me for a few days. And if I had gotten off that bus, I would have been fired. <laughs> And I thought, I'm not getting off this bus. I have a show to do. The show must go on. <laughs> and he wow. said, well, well, I'll send a car for you in the next town, and you can come back and meet me. And it was we were both young. When he was 23, I was like 15. There was no hanky-panky. We were just two young people surrounded <laughs> by a lot of people who wouldn't let us do anything. Did you talk with him at all, at all about what was happening then, the racial tensions that were brewing at that time? Did you talk about it with him or did he make you aware of anything? Oh, yeah, of course, you know, you can't take your skin off like you can a, a bathrobe, but you can actually get out there and do something and feel that you have, you know, a place in the world too, not always being pushed down or looked down the nose at you and putting you down and treating you badly. You know, that's... You know, when Muhammad would go out and say, I am the greatest, you know, that was an affirmation for many more people than himself, you know. And some, <laughs> the funny thing is like uh, in those days when I was hanging out with him in that time in Florida, he used to take the car. We used to go in the car top down and he'd say, okay, now I'm going to my people, my neighborhood where they were the poorest people. You cannot imagine how poor they were. And we go in the neighborhood and the car would pull around the corner and everybody saw him in that car. And people came out of the cracks in the corners and out from under rugs and off rooftops to see him. And they were saying, yay, Muhammad, Muhammad. And then he'd say something to me like, watch this, watch this. And then he'd stand up in the car and, and he'd be like gigantic and he'd go, I am the greatest. Vote for me and you vote for a winner. You know, like, put your money on me and stuff like that. And they say, yeah, and they'd all be screaming and shouting. It was like, whoa, this is some kind of interesting situation here I'm in. How did I get here? <laughs> I'm always asking myself, how did I get into this? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about when you moved to Paris, what it was like as a young woman from America to move there. And um, 
I read that you, when you arrived, you and Donna Jordan slept on the floor of one of Karl Lagerfeld's apartments. Is that true? Oh, yeah. You know how it is with your friends' sleepover. As long as you have that sleeping bag, it can become a coat, you know, so you don't have to double pack. Actually, that sleeping bag became a fashion item for the world. After we wore it out one night, everybody started making those sleeping bag coats. That was an Antonio Lopez. He started that stuff because we just didn't have coats. It got cold. But then Carl gave us clothes. And we were sleeping on that floor because that was all we had. You know, we had no money. And Carl was taking care of us. He, kept, he let us stay in that apartment, which was on Rue Bonaparte across from the Beaux-Arts School. And it's where all the artists stay. And what did we care? The girls slept toe to nose on the bed and the boys slept in sleeping bags on the floor. And then, you know, we were so busy. Uh, Antonio was so busy drawing like an atelier. It was the real atelier of the old masters when they're doing using their models and stuff. And Don and I were the models. And so all day he'd be sketching us until we fell out on the floor. so exhausted from sketching and modeling. And then wake up the next day and do the same thing until we got dressed up in Carl's clothes and went around the corner to the bar and then went out at night all dressed up because Carl dressed us. Actually, I had this outfit on that Carl gave me the first time I went to see him, Mr. Lagerfeld, at his apartment. And it was all Art Deco in black like a 1930s movie with lilies, cattle lilies and mirrored walls and all so mysterious and beautiful with black marble floor. And oh, so beautiful. And he came out and he said, you're going to dinner, my dear. What do you have on? <laughs> and then he threw something at me and was it was like electric blue, and it came flying through the air at me. He said, put this on. So I went in the other room, and I put it on, and all I had was my little G-string on underneath. And this was the blue angel, the blue angel negligee that was supposed to be given to Marlene Dietrich. But Carl and all of us were late for dinner one day at her house, and she got mad, so he didn't give it to her. He gave it to me. <laughs> so I put that outfit on, and we all went out to dinner to La Coupole, which was the hot spot where all the designers met up at night. And as we walked in, I had that outfit on, which was transparent. And somehow... Was it actually Marlena Dietrich? Was it actually her dress? Yes, it was. It was made for her by Carl Lagerfeld, and she got so mad at him after she found out I had it on. <laughs> That's not the good way to meet someone you love. But anyway, taking their clothes from them. Anyway, I had that outfit on, and I was walking through, you know, all like modest with my arms down, and suddenly the thing got caught in a nail or something in the back on the floor, the tile, and the robe started coming off, and I held my arms up like this to turn around to get the robe because it had a train on it. And I was trying to pull the train, and it got really transparent all before you knew it. Everybody was standing up applauding at La Coupole because there I was, <laughs> silhouetted with this blue angel negligee on and my little G-string and my gold goody two high heel platforms. And they thought, uh-oh. This is showbiz, so we had a good time. And after that, I arrived in Paris and had my first drink of champagne at 21. I never drank before. But I said to myself when I was very young, when I'm 21, I want to be in Paris drinking champagne. And voila, it happened really big time for me. It was so glamorous. The boys were dressed I in tuxedos. 
I mean, was it really as amazing in Paris at that time as they say it was? It was beyond amazing because, you know, what had happened is there was the old style of modeling and the old style of couture. And suddenly crazy Donna Jordan, me and Andy Warhol and, and Carl and Antonio Lopez arrived like pop art. It was like we were popping all over the place and everybody was so interested because we were all friends with Andy who was making these underground movies with all of these transvestites and drag queens. And it was so colorful, you know, like this whole new flower just blossomed out and everybody just wanted to start dancing to the music we had, which we brought over from America, like James Brown and Love Unlimited and Marvin Gaye. And, you know, the music started changing, you know, and, and we knew how to dance to that music. So when we went out to club set at night, everybody wanted to dance with us because we had the moves. You know, we had the moves. <laughs> how did Andy, how did Andy treat you, Andy Warhol? Oh, he's like a, a little brother, very shy, and he'd always want to sit in a corner and have me sit with him so he could look at people. And we always looked at people, and then he was like starstruck by everybody. And if anybody came into the room, then he was fascinated. He'd like, go over there and talk to them. So he'd send me out like the messenger. <laughs> go over there and talk to them. I didn't want to go talk to them <laughs> and bring them over here. So I'd have to go and talk to these people and bring them over. Because I was all dressed up and fancy and sparkly, and he was all shy sitting in the corner. He's always been like that. We used to have these great weekends out of Montauk, and we used to watch, like, um, you know, like those kind of B-movies, monster movies of the blob and stuff, and sit on the floor and eat homemade pasta, which I'd make in the kitchen for Halston and Andy and me, and we'd be sitting there watching these B-movies. Oh, we have always had a good time. And Andy and, and Antonio Lopez and Carl and I were in Paris together. We used to go to these old bordellos and eat dinner there. But we had nothing to do with the rest of the action. It's just that it was old world. You know, where Toulouse-Lautrec and everybody used to go, you know. And then sometimes, like at night, you know, Yves Saint Laurent and I would take a taxi around the red light district in Paris and look at all the girls and see what they were wearing. And wah, bam, bam, walla, bam, boom. There you were, right on the runway, the same outfit, those see-through tops. Uh. <laughs> so that's where it came from. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> the streets. Fashion comes from the streets. How did you learn how to wear clothes? Um, is that where you like walking on the runways and work, hanging out with these guys at that time? Was that where you learned the sort of certain attitude that you need to make those clothes look chic, do you think? Well, you know, you want to show off for the boys. They put so much effort into sewing and making all those things so you can look good. So you're not going to go out there like a dead frog. <laughs> you're going to go out there hopping. You're going to get over there and kiss the prince and you're going to look as good as you can. It's such a fairy tale. I'm telling you, when they dress you up, they have fantasy and you can be anything. Carl used to do these little drawings of me like, oh, today I'm going to dress you up like Marie Antoinette. And he put a powdered wig on me and then he put like a big beauty spot under my eye. Like here, there's something missing. And he'd go get a magic marker and put a spot under my eye. And I'd have to wear that like all week because it didn't come off. <laughs> People were crazy about magic markers in those days. That was like brand new in the art world. So everybody was like scribbling with magic markers. And he always had one on him. And if we went out to the cafes, everybody would be scribbling on the cloth napkins and stuff. Antonio, Andy, Carl and me would be drawing pictures to each other like love notes and napkins. I have a few of them here. 
that should go in the closet. It should totally go into your magical closet. Oh, but I have a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I have a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) I can't talk to you without talking about the Battle of Versailles, which is something that you're so um, associated with. And it's such an important moment in um, fashion history for really putting America on the map. I think lots of people don't know about it still. So I just thought it'd be really great to hear from you about what it was um, and just any memories of it that you have. Well, 1973, the route was rotting on Versailles, and so the French invited the American designers to come over for this benefit to fix the roof. It was just like, you know, it's like, oh, we feel sorry for them. Let's go help. They want to do this show, you know. So we went over to do this show, all these French designers and all the American designers who were on the top of the list. And so the American designers chose certain models. And what it really was, the Americans went to a party invited by the French, and everybody was participating, the French and the Americans, to raise money to fix the roof on that crumbling building. So we all got together and decided to raise some money by having a fashion show. So the cream of the... So, so who were the, so the American designers were Halston, Stephen Halston, Bill Blass, Anne Klein, Stephen Burroughs, and um, the Halston's... Stephen Burroughs, Austin, Ann Klein, Oscar de la Renta, and Bill Blass. Five. And then we had Liza Minnelli and um, Ed, Kay Thompson. Kay Thompson, you remember Funny Face? So she was there teaching us all how to do those movements of Bonjour Paris, Bonjour Paris, and we were all Bonjour Paris. So that was the Liza. song that Liza performed, right? Yeah, and we were the showgirls behind Liza Minnelli, and I was third row center with her because the first dancers were in the first row, and I was, no, I was second row center because we all wanted to be dancers and be on stage with Liza, and she was so cute and nice. And, you know, Halston invited her and and a whole bunch of other people. Marisa Berenson was there, and all the Americans were there, Grace Kelly and Josephine Baker, you know, they were there, and Nureyev, I kept stepping on his toe. But on the stage was Nureyev, Josephine Baker, Liza Minnelli, all of us girls, and the designers were in the audience, ooh, (laughs) sitting together. And, um, oh, they, they just had a great time. Oh, we should say who the French designers were. So oh. it was Yves Saint Laurent. Yves Saint Laurent, Cardin, Emmanuel um, 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 Ungaro. Was it Dior, 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 Dior Mark Dior, Bowen? Mark Bowen, yeah. He was the designer yeah. then. Yeah, I yeah. worked with him a lot at Dior. Right. He was very, very nice. But I was there for the Americans, and the yeah. uh, French had their own models. Yeah. That was and like, what was so refreshing was that the American designers brought in an array of um, racially mixed models. Yeah, that was um, the thing that did it. Right. Because, you see, the way that models move depicts a time. So the movement that we had was depicting the time that we lived in at that time. So the whole thing was that our show was very simple and very uh, directly, um, you know, could have been from the streets. It could have been, you know, people just having a good time with music and clothes, where it was more classic and more uh, old-fashioned in the French section. So you had this, that was the clash, you know, the old and the new. 
So everybody, of course, wanted to get that feeling of the new because when the music came on and the girls from America started moving, it was like, oh, right, this is how we really feel. You know, it's like everybody was like cheering and almost getting out of their seats to dance when they saw us come out and move to the music. And that was where the thing took off and became something like, okay, it's about a dance off in a way. <laughs> and do you remember the feeling of, I believe there was a moment in the show when you came out in a white dress and you spun around and around all the way down the runway. And um, do you remember how it felt being well, in that front was, of that crowd? Yeah, that was a Halston dress and it was like a hundred layers of chiffon that were, and it looked as though I was a moth. And when they put the light on me, Halston said, you are my moth. So I just flew to the light, but I didn't know where the end of the stage was because it was when you stand in the spotlight, there's only blackness and the light. And when I could feel that I was on the very edge of the stage when I stopped twirling and all the layers were up over my head, flying around me. And when they and they settled down, you know how when a moth stays still, all the wings close, the wings came down and I was just tittering there on the edge of the stage my toes were off the edge I could hear the audience gasp they all went oh and they thought I was gonna fall into the orchestra pit but I didn't I just put my wings up and flew back in the other direction till I hit the wall in the back and left <laughs> <laughs> that's usually how I end I hit the wall in did, the back because I don't know when to stop <laughs> like a moth um, yeah. Do you did you ever did you get do you get nervous before you go onto a before you walk out on a runway or no I get worked up because I'm so excited the feeling is like oh my god that that curtain is going to go up and that and all those hearts beating and those people's expectation and all those excited people you know like people in the fashion and on just society people they are really kind of like they love these shows so much. You know, they live for it. And when they are settled down there, they want you to be in it. They want you to show them something. And so for me, this is like the moment when I can say, okay, I know how you feel. Let's go for it. Let's have some fun, you know. Let's enjoy this creative moment. What do you think about shows now that when they're so short and they, there's, there isn't that performance element from the model? There isn't that expression, self-expression what there's no shows now but my daughter's out there doing shows actually now you know self-distancing and she has that movement and she has that freedom and you know that's just something in you with or without an audience you know either you have an experience in the garment the clothing or the design and it's just an expression of experience of you know the story that this designer is trying to tell with the way he drapes your body how you are supposed to feel you know, and so I think she has that. And I like to say that now, you know, um, it's not an easy job modeling because it's not it's not a job at all. Really, it's not <laughs> you can't hold it. It's not in an office. It's not something other than your own spirit that makes the, the job something. And it's also, you know, who you are and where you are with whom and what they're doing. So it doesn't really exist. You are only there like when you make a sculpture and you're that thing that they put under the clay to hold it like a structure. You're just part of the structure. So it doesn't exist unless there's, you know, somebody doing something. 
that needs that structure, you know. And the structure is the spirit of the girl. And if the girls don't have the spirit, I don't know what to say. You know, I owned a model agency for 20 years in Italy. And I used to teach all of these girls like Naomi and, and Tyra Banks and everybody and all these girls. And I used to teach a multitude of girls how to walk. And they took it and they did what they did and interpreted it in their own way. But you have to have a spirit. And if they don't feel it, many times girls come from places in the world that have very bad situations. And they just want to get out. And, you know, especially they go to Italy. They think, okay, this is my chance to go to a country that can give me a life, you know. But you can't change their spirit so quickly. And they're very young and they're, they're a little bit depressed because... It's not like you make tons of money doing this job. It's more of a lifestyle, you know. That's quite interesting what you say about it's kind of about where you're from because your catwalk walk is so extraordinary and anyone who, you know, should Google you, you doing your catwalk, there's all these um, montages of you walking on the runways and it's so incredible and, and so charismatic. But do you feel like you were bringing the spirit of New York and what was happening in New York in the 70s to your walk? Well, I think you always bring your history with you and you bring your history of your family with you. You know, I come from art. I come from the background of artists, jazz musicians and painters and designers and everything like that. So I bring the joy of that creative spirit, you know, like this is your spirit and you have to feel alive in the moment. And the walk is about, you know, representing that um, possibility that you can be happy in a moment and just abandon to this fear you know it's fearless in a way if you go out on the runway you have to be kind of fearless it's so you're so lucky you were in paris at a time of such um creativity for fashion and then you were you moved back to new york you were in new york in the 70s um at the height of the kind of disco era um and you were one of halston's models and you were amused for stephen burroughs and hanging out with andy warhol and mick jagger and everyone um I would just be happy to hear any stories you have of that time. Well, in, in that York. time, in that time, I was on Broadway doing this musical and I was dancing and singing and everything, but I never really got tired. And at night, you, you know, if you can't calm down, you have to go out and dance. But before all of that happened, I remember Steve Rubell and um, he used to come to this club called Hurrah and they wouldn't let him in. And he said, oh, Pat, they won't let me in. Can I go in with you? I said, sure, because they only want fashion people to come in. And, you know, he was cute and everything, but they didn't quite know who he was. And he had this club out in Long Island called The Paradise or something. He said, you have to come to my club. And I said, okay, I'll come. So I went out there, me and Grace Jones and a whole bunch of people went out there in a bus and did some singing and dancing around and jumping around in our Fiorucci clothes. And he said, you know, I'm going to open this club in New York and I'm not going to let anybody in unless I say so. And so one night he got that club together and he said, come over. I want to show you this club I'm, I'm opening in, in a few days. So I went over with him and we walked through the doors there. It was like the studio that he had taken all the chairs out of. And it had lights coming out of the ceiling, like phallic lights coming down. Like it looked like outer space. It was so huge. It was like five stories high on the inside with balconies. And it was huge. And so he said, yeah, you got to bring some friends over. So the next night, I was at home and Halston called up. He said, you want to come over for dinner? And everybody's lonely in their little apartments in New York. And I said, yeah, I'll come over for dinner. So he sent a car for me and I went over. We had some food. And he said, what do you want to do? Um, 
I said, I have a friend with a club. You want to go over? He said, I can't dance. I said, don't worry about dancing. Just come on, let's go. So I took him over to what would be the Studio 54. And Steve was there and he let us in. You know, Halston was kind of hot at the time. He had all of these wonderful friends like Elizabeth Taylor and, and all the, you know, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire and all these people that could come to the club. So I took Halston in there and he liked it. And we started dancing. He started dancing. He said, but I have two left feet. I said, not anymore. <laughs> so the next, next time um, we went over there, he, he came over and brought a whole bunch of girls, dressed them up in dresses, Halston dresses. And we arrived on the opening a ceremony. And it was so glamorous. And after that, everybody started like VIP. All the stars started coming. And Steve Rebell got his wish. He put up that red rope. And he just was so picky about who could come in. But you know, the wonderful thing about it is you can really dress up really nice. And you can dance with everybody together. And in a certain hour, after 12 midnight, it would, he would open up this one section, like the VIPs would be behind this curtain, dancing and having fun and talking on couches. Then he'd open up the curtains, and then all it would mix with all the young people who were like fashion cute and everything, and all the busboys and everybody would mix together, and everybody could dance with everybody. So it was really invigorating not to be at home alone at night but that was our living room so at night we just like you know after work which stopped at five o'clock because there weren't 24 hours 24 7 like people work these days it was like after five o'clock you go home get tootled up take a disco nap that means you sleep before you go out to dinner and get dressed up and go out and dance at the studio it was glamorous and a little Amazing. bit risque too. <laughs> hmm. And you're and you're still friends with Stephen Burrows. Just I mean, so many of those amazing people are no longer with us, but Stephen's still around, still working, and I think you still do things with him. Yeah, sometimes we do these Zoom talks and things, and he's <laughs> so lovely because he's always the same, calm, you know, simple explanations, no frills, and he's so talented, you know. I think he's only one of them left now from this from this Versailles 73. I don't know who else is around. The photo from your wedding that you wanted to put in there, just quickly t tell me, how did you meet Paul Van Ravenstein, your husband? Well, I was doing this shooting for Playboy with our Gallant and his sister, Apollonia von Ravenstein, which is Parkinson's model all the time. She was there, and I was supposed to play the girlfriend, you know, Frisky. And so I had on a suit, and she was a little bit half-nude, and I had her across my lap. And then we, we were, like, coming into the shooting, and I just saw this beautiful boy. He looked like an angel. And I said to my now sister-in-law, who was just my model friend, I said, look at that guy. He's mine. And she's, she didn't say anything. She didn't react like excited or anything. I said, well, you're not excited, so I'm going to go over and talk to him. And I went over and said, hi, I'm a Cancerian. He said, I'm a Cancerian too. And I said, oh, well, I'll catch you later. And then I went back to him and I said, well, I talked to him. And I said, why aren't you excited? He's so cute. And she said, that's my brother. <laughs> 
So I got one of my best friend models whom I adore because the first time I met her, I was in Rome doing the shooting with Bogatti for Vogue, Italian Vogue. And we were in the Rome studios crawling on the floor together looking for the contacts lens of one of the photographers there that had dropped out of his eye. So we were crawling along the floor and then we bumped into each other. And she was so nice to me. We were all standing on this bridge over one of the over one of the canals, dressed in Dutch costume, and it was so like out of a movie. And it was so beautiful because we took boats and we went around, and it was lovely. We did the clomp dance, and a couple of model friends like Marpessa was there, and a whole bunch of other people, and it was lovely. It was just something out of a storybook, you know, in Holland. And before we close your magical cabinet and our bring our conversation to an end, what was there anything else you wanted to put Oh, in yeah. There? I want to put my art supplies in there so I yeah. can paint and create. And I want to put yeah. a suitcase in there, full, packed full of designer holiday clothes. And, of course, the cosmetics to go with it so I can have some fun. Or anybody who goes in there can look in there and enjoy it. <laughs> That's perfect. Oh, I forgot well, one thing. Sorry. I want to put my Guru Gita chanting book in there so I don't forget who I am. <laughs> well, Pat Cleveland, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks. You're so cute. I like you. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.